0: Hello, this is Talking to Titans, a brand new podcast from University College London with myself, Kathy-Jean Grandi, UCL alumni, art historian and conservation scientist. And me, Gudrun Moore, Professor of Molecular Genetics at UCL's Institute of Child Health. In celebration of International Women's Day on Sunday the 8th of March, we're chatting to seven women who are at the top of their academic game. We've called them The Titans.
1: Kathy and myself have been professional mentors to each other and good friends for many years now. We've watched each other's careers grow and know firsthand how difficult it can be to climb the ladders that are so often owned and claimed by men. One of the ways
0: that UCL has been measuring its gender balance is through the Athena Swan Charter, which recognizes good employment practices for women working in higher education. In this episode, we're speaking to the woman behind the first gold departmental Athena Swan Award, Sarah Mole. Hi Sarah. Hello. You're UCL Provost Envoy for Gender Equality. What exactly does that title mean?
2: It means I think about impact on gender and the fairness of gender in our workplace uh, at UCL as we go about our Sort of day-to-day work but it also means that I'm thinking about how we can learn about gender equality or influence the world to think differently about gender. But okay. I know the foundations of UCL are radical in that they, it was a university set up to, uh, to allow people to attend who otherwise were excluded from university. So you know the foundations of UCL are radical. Do you think they're still radical today? Radical, yes, because we're pushing at the boundaries.
0: And other universities are doing this as well?
2: Yes. I, I mean, in the UK, there's a chartering scheme called Athena Swan, which universities now work towards, or at least choose to work towards. The whole scheme is looking at gender equality in all aspects of university life, not just academics, but also the professional service staff that support mm-hmm. all the academic work going on in a university.
1: Do you think Athena Swan has been successful at UCL, Sarah?
2: I do. Uh, because I can remember what it was like before and I know what it's like now and I think the recognition of inequality that was there but perhaps not it wasn't realized that it was there has been profound and we're wanting people to be able to be themselves to be their authentic selves and because in that way you give the best of yourself you have diverse opinions I mean all sorts of outcomes for you know, the life of a university in both its teaching but also its research and its impact on society.
1: But is it true that probably most of the work that's behind the swan committees that put themselves forwards for the gold, silver, bronze status is done by women?
2: I think often the women are stepping up and perhaps the men aren't. Um, so of course, and it actually it is a lot of work.
1: What do you think would be a good way of engaging the men in these institutes, departments, to see this as important? Because I think the
2: changes that come about are good for them as well. So if you're thinking about good practice, things that are are good things to do and fair things to do, then everyone benefits from those. And so the men can help bring those about as well.
0: How are you trying to reach men? Because
2: that's not easy. Awareness, really. I mean, I think at a local level, of course, you can invite men to join and participate. So there's now the Gender Working Group, which, deliberately, we've tried to make the, the net wide in terms of the people Was involved in Was it because it, we
1: didn't achieve 50-50? Because at the top levels in UCL, we're not 50-50. For professors, 70% are men, yeah. which means only 30% are women. And if we have, as we do, 1,800 professors, that means there are only 600 women in that group. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: And so it's basically two to one.
2: So, of course, there's a historical reason for that. Recruiting people in fairly allowing them uh, to progress in a fair manner. And, of course, that eventually leads to uh, 50-50 at the top. But because that hasn't happened historically in the past, we've still got a, a legacy of not as many women at the top or losing women along the way, actually. And, and that's the thing that we can address. And, and if you understand why the reasons for that, then you can start addressing them. I'd also like to add another thought, because I think if our picture of success, perfection, is a white man's thing you know (laughs) Uh, we have to change that and we have to say actually no we know we need to value all types of leadership we need to value different ways of working different ways of having discussion because i think if women are being forced to be like men Mm. then of course they're never themselves still takes an enormous amount of time though it seems yes yeah Yeah. you can't change fundamental things quickly quickly you just can't but you can put in processes to force you know, putting things to force the process and then it just becomes easier and easier. So, and I I guess that's one of the things I try and do as Envoy sometimes is what's a really key thing we can change that will start that process.
1: One of the things that's interesting for us because we're in the Faculty of Mm Population Health Sciences is that in fact their professors are 42% women. Yes. Maybe that's something to do with you and being within the Institute and pushing for these values going forward.
2: I think there's been an increase in the number of women professors because women are perhaps more ambitious or allowed to be more ambitious or willing to work towards the criteria that allow them to go for promotion. Uh, And I think that's particularly true in fairly recent years. I mean, at UCL, we know the promotion criteria framework has changed in the last couple of years and that made a huge difference. There was a huge increase in the number of women Uh, Being appointed, and that was really recognising the work they were contributing towards the university that perhaps hadn't been recognised before.
0: To be ambitious, though, a young person, how would you say
2: take that forward? For a young person, I think it's really important to understand who they are and how they work, how they think, what motivates them, in a sense, what drives them, what makes them work that little bit harder because. Everyone wants to spend time doing something they enjoy, that motivated, that making a difference, you know, whatever it is that drives you. And if you understand how you work, then really you want to be doing work that allows you to be yourself, to, to sort of enjoy what you're doing. And I think that's part of being ambitious, really, is thinking about yourself and working out where you can do whatever it is you want to do, but also contribute to whatever it is you're contributing, you know, whether it's teaching, whether it's research, it could be making ice cream. I mean, right. you know, it, it doesn't it, matter what it, it is. Yeah. It, it, it's it's whatever, whatever drives yeah. you. And then I think you have to believe in yourself. Mm. So if you know yourself, then you can believe in yourself. And when other people might be trying to hold you back, put you down, all those kind of micro things that you just think, oh, am I good enough? You can tell yourself, yes, I am. I am. Actually, I might be better. But how about
0: diversity? I mean, we are now seeing people writing about how important it is to have diverse
2: groups, teams of people. I think, you know, if you're trying to tackle absolutely major um, challenges for the world, you want people that think differently as well because something that you miss, someone else will spot. The way I work is very collaborative and and I guess that's to increase the diversity. It's to bring in the expertise And to me, it seems a really sensible way of working. I don't see why you need a hierarchical way of working where there's one person at the top that knows all the answers, because there's no way they know all the answers. Absolutely.
0: The UN goal is to have gender equality in 2030. How how
2: are we going to get there? I think you have to be active about it. If you're not active, then it doesn't happen. I'll just give you a simple story in terms of external speakers in departments where even though the discipline is fairly gender-balanced, lower down, mostly the, 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 when you're thinking about inviting a speaker, you think of a man rather than a woman, and you actively have to think about a woman. Now, that's ever so easy to do because if you're suggesting a speaker, you just suggest one of the opposite gender, and so you can automatically reach that you know, inviting 50%. And so it does require you to be alert and to know where the gaps are and where those key points that will really make a difference and then you can prioritise efforts in those areas.
1: So what do you feel about the gender pay gap?
2: Again, it's an indication of where people are now in terms of position, or rather it's a measure. So when the gender pay gap is zero, or pretty much zero, then we know...
1: But there is a complacency about it, I think. There is a general complacency about pay gap when it gets to a percentage where people say, oh, well, the reason, the difference is just because this person took a couple of years out to have their children and they've come in and Mm -hmm. a bit a lower level and do you think that's true
2: there's a gender pay gap because most of the senior people are men yeah. I and mean, it's quite simple really um in terms of recruitment you can think about shortlist but i think it's role models there.
1: like you mm-hmm. doing the job you're doing indirectly mm-hmm. influences how people look at things going forward so i mean you know pay is hidden when you get higher up
2: so yeah. maybe if the pay was rather more transparent, transparent. Mm-hmm. then in those roles where pay is being negotiated, you know exactly what the men are being paid as well mm. as the women, and I think that's still hidden. I mean, not just at UCL, but many places. I agree. But it also reflects on the injustice of the people who are applying those grades. If you can negotiate a grade up, it means what they offered you in the first place wasn't a, a fair offer. Yeah. So, you really, you shouldn't have to negotiate. It should be a fair offer. Goodwin, have you ever had to do that? Yes. Yeah.
1: It was a situation where... You know, the grade had fairly large large width to the band, and I was offered the lowest. And I said, well, I got paid more at a previous employment. Could I have a, some more, please? A bit like Oliver Twist. And, I, <laughs> and, and, I, and I've done the same. And yeah, they said the they talked about it for a while, and then they came back and made me a better offer. Mm-hmm. Because it had taken so long to get to that point, I accepted it. Because yeah. mm-hmm. I didn't really want to waste any more time negotiating... I think it was fair. But then, you know, you hear other people, what they get paid, and you go, hmm, oh, maybe I accepted something a bit lower.
2: Well, they say, you know, you know, you want to climb the ladder, pay-wise at least, you do have to move around a lot. And, you know, that's a difficult thing when you're in a really good institution. You, you don't actually want to leave, you want to stay there.
1: That's very interesting, because that comes back to the issue of moving mm-hmm. to get mm. better salary. And your children are in school.
2: There's an awful lot of people at UCL where the partners live in different places. That's partly the mm. challenge of getting work but also some of it must be to do with family stability and especially for that long period when you're ch- when children are in school and you don't want to disrupt them. But for young
0: people, young women, it's not easy to come up to her boss and say, you know, what would you suggest they do? How would they tackle that?
2: It, it is about knowing who you are and in a sense your worth. So I would say you should look a- around at your peers and see in a sense compare yourself but at least look and see what, what where where you're good uh where you're better from. make a case yeah make a case self
1: promotion isn't it really it's yeah, yeah and it's a hard I thing don't to think do. i don't think anyone's very good at it but i think probably Women are worse than men at Mm. self-promotion.
0: I see you were born into a family of sisters and you also went to a girls' school. Mm. Do you think that gave you extra ammunition? Absolutely. Of course, I didn't know at the time, but I look back and I think I just grew up being me. I went to a girls' school too and I found it very nurturing. I mean, everybody was in. It was like a big
2: team. We were all helping each other.
1: I do think it's known that girls in girls' schools do better. Than girls in mixed schools.
2: Yeah, And, you know, we even find that now with, with adults. Yes. So yeah. we, again, know that there's been studies done that if you sort of have a, a speaker and you ask questions at the end, if the first question is by a man, more men ask questions. If the first question is by a woman, more women. Or, you know, it becomes more equal. You're yes. now
1: the person that people say, oh, I'm going to go and talk to Sarah about yeah. this because yeah. she's in charge of this.
2: Yeah. I have actually heard some real horror Horror stories. stories. What do you tell them to do? So obviously it depends on the story. Story, Sometimes it's the person that, in a sense, they have to be the person that makes a stand or or says something. In other times I can actually bring the awareness to to somewhere else Mm -hmm. who who will make it right. Um, And I certainly remember doing that a few years ago for um, some academic teaching where there was absolutely awful things being said in a class of men to young female students who were quite horrified, really, mm-hmm. but sort of thought, oh, this is just how it is. And it, I actually heard about it in a very roundabout way. Right. And when we said, no, that isn't what it should be like, you know, basically saying what would happen if it continued. And it was, it was sort changed of within that process. I UCL, think. do they have, like, other safe places for people to go to make comments
0: or at least get have some help about situations like this?
2: Yes, there's lots of ways you can do it. Obviously, I'm there. We also have a new system called uh, report and support where you can either anonymously or with your name submit whatever it mm-hmm. is you've either observed or has happened to you and follow that through and then of course that's taken up properly uh, by UCL and that's quite a new system and really important to be anonymous because certainly in academic fields it's such a cl- such a small area that if you are a young student complaining about a professor mm. It who holds really. all the power mm. you know that your future career is in yes. their hands and yeah. that is just which of course it is it, such a difficult position to be
0: in you're also professor of molecular biology and yes. have led research into batten's
2: disease can you tell us a little bit more about your work mm-hmm. in uh, batten disease yeah. batten disease is a, a rare disorder of children uh, it's an inherited disease the children are born healthy and, you know, everything seems fine. But because they've got a mutation in one particular gene, uh, cells in their brain start to die and so they lose gradually lots of things. You know, so they'll, they'll suffer from seizures, they'll lose their vision, uh, they'll lose their cognitive ability, the ability to talk, ability to walk... There's quite a number of different genes, so when I began to be involved sort of over 25 years ago, at that point we didn't know any of the genes, uh, so that was uh, one of the first things that, that we were tackling identifying the genes and then trying to understand what those genes do and then trying to think about treatment and therapy and so now identifying sort of drugs that we can repurpose and, and that will perhaps really be um, helpful. To either treatments on their own or to support the gene therapy, so really exciting work. Yeah. So,
1: what about work-life balance, Sarah? So, Did you surely stuff? have to be a role model for that. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. It's, interestingly,
2: I very rarely work at weekends, and I have very rarely worked at weekends since I was a PhD student. But I make sure I have time to myself, time to time with my family, uh, time to relax. I'd love to have a three-day weekend. You know, That's I enjoy so my weekends, does. but I also enjoy my working week. What do you do to relax? I mean, are you a walker? Or a- uh, yeah, I am. Actually, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a real introvert. So uh, if I really want to relax, anything on my own is great. Uh, I, of course, I love being with my family too. If I really need to sort of, in a sense, take time out, then I love walking. I discovered running when I was uh, 50 can't say, I've never run a marathon, but I love running in the countryside and just being on my own and that sort of listening to the birds and whatever. Takes your mind off. Things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's that kind of focusing Release. on something yeah. that means you're not thinking about other things, I suppose. And I, and I find that really relaxing.
1: Is so. there anyone in your life you've looked up to? Ah, that's a good
2: question. I've often admired various people, not necessarily some men and some women. I think because I'm a, a bit of an introvert, I tend to think and process a lot. So... I guess I've always been inspired by people and especially women and I think that's probably because they st- they were standing out uh, in a man's world who really were at the forefront of either their field or wherever the world was at any one time like the suffragettes or whatever. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. yeah. I sort of think 100 years ago uh, I was born in Lancashire you know I'd have probably been working in the cotton mills probably too exhausted to do anything but if I had any <laughs> the energy then I would have been fighting for women's rights right. there, I'm sure, or doing whatever I, I could. And that's yeah. your maybe your emotional centre that you seem to have. So my emotional centre is making a difference. Making a difference. So, you know, wherever you are, mm-hmm. there's something that can be improved and that really drives me. And lastly, I, I think we'd like
0: to ask you about a piece of advice you'd like to give anyone who's in a difficult point in their
2: career. What would you say to do? I think you have to decide what is the difficulty at the time and, and how have you got to where you are and where do you actually want to go in the future? Maybe you need a difference or maybe you need to carry on doing where you are, but you need to believe in yourself a little bit more, fight your corner. Yeah, sometimes the best thing is to change
1: change as well. Yeah. You know,
2: so don't be afraid of change um, if that's what it requires. And if you're somewhere where you're not appreciated and you're not enjoying it, mm. oh, please look for somewhere else. Yeah. Know, go somewhere else.
1: Thank you very much, Sarah. Thanks. I think it's very interesting at the role that Sarah's taking in the university, which is university-wide, and she's representing a population of 39,000 students plus 12,500 staff. And making huge inroads into finding ways to make it fairer across the university.' So
0: important, so important that someone like her, you know takes on this extra task, because a lot of people could just sit back and say, "Well, I've got enough to do with my research. I'm not going to do anything else for anybody else. The other point that I really liked uh, that she picked up on was um, how you know, and, and I think we asked. I mean, if there's an issue, where do you go? How can you deal with it?" And you know because If you say something to your senior lecturer or professor, you can be doomed for life. I mean, your career can be over.
1: How do you handle that? Thank you very much indeed for joining us in this episode of Talking to Titans. In the next episode, we'll be speaking to Ruth Kennedy, founder of the Louis Dundas Centre for Children's Palliative Care. For more information, please go to www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash UCL minds forward slash Titans.
0: If you like this episode, leave us a review in your podcast app, share it with your friends, and tweet at UCL with the hashtag TalkingToTitans. The series was a Whistledown production.
2: UCR Minds brings together the knowledge, insights and ideas of our community through a wide range of events and activities that are open to everyone.